We are in a series, <laughs> a very long series, entitled This Is Our Story. And today I'd like to continue that series in the book of Job. There are very few other pieces of literature in the ancient world that rival some of the pieces of literature that we have in our Bible, and Job is one of them. Uh, while a lot of people look at Job, and many people popularly know Job as the guy who suffered a lot, who lost a lot, and who suffered because there was some sort of debate in the heavens about why he had good things, um, and then he lost it all, and it's basically a question of how God is good and how God is just, and, and he's famous for all those things. It's actually not a book about philosophy. It's not a book about apologetics or arguments about who God is, what God should be. The category that the book of Job falls in is actually a category which is called wisdom literature, or it's called poetry. It's designed to evoke within us a different set of thinking around our faith than just an argument for or an argument against. When it comes to suffering, and by the way, all of us in this room, all of us in this room, and this is why this this book is just so powerful, have gone through a period of our lives where we had certain things or we had certain status or life was a certain level. And then all of a sudden, for no reason or for seemingly no reason, things got really difficult and challenging. Whether that was disease, whether that was betrayal, whether that was natural disaster loss, every single one of us in this room have gone through what we would call suffering. And some of us might even call it evil. We would call it pain, suffering, evil. This just isn't right. Why? Why in the world, God, would this happen to me of all people? And not only just me, I've heard multiple people, reasonably so, understandably so, because we are human. Why them? Even though if it's not happening to you, you might even think you have a friend, a neighbor, a family member, a coworker, and just hell is raining down upon their lives as a result of factors and things that are completely out of their control. And you go, but they are so, like of all people in this world, they should be the last person to ever have to suffer wrath or humiliation or loss or anything like this. Does this sound familiar? Okay, we're all on the same page. We all have experienced this essence of suffering. So the book of Job is going to dive headfirst into this issue, this issue that has been around since the dawn of humanity, most likely. Job is probably, most scholars will tell us, the oldest book in the Bible. And that's interesting because all of the other passages that you can think of that would then give a reason or a purpose for all the bad things happening in your life are in conversation with Job. They're in conversation with what this story is going to set up. They're in conversation or trying to battle back and forth and wrestle is Job's reason and rationale, or at least his argument, or at least his poetry, is it really true? Is it really right? And all of the rest of the passages that come are going to wrestle with that. And um, all of the passages that we're going to look at and the general essence that I wish to share with you is going to wrestle with you. I have a feeling every single one of us in this room, probably at some particular point during suffering, pain, trial, temptation, whatever it is, have tried to reason or create a rationale, create a why or a purpose around the thing that is happening. And I'm going to suggest to you that this piece of literature is going to push you to your edge. That the reasons and the purposes and the rationales that even you have come up with 
may not be what this author essentially says should be in reality when it comes to suffering. Another quick side note, I am very aware that I, there is no way I'm going to do justice to this book. I, in, as much as I can encourage you, after tonight, if you want to go home and pull out your Bible and read through the fullness of the book, you will engage with a level of literary brilliance that will move you, that will challenge you, that will cause you to question every assumption that you thought you knew about God, about justice, about pain, and about suffering. And that's what that book is designed to do. So I'm going to do my best to point out a couple things and try to push on a couple things, but there's just no way the fullness of what is written in this book is going to come to light. Fascinatingly enough, when it comes to the issue of suffering and pain, the Bible doesn't give you, as I mentioned before, a philosophy or a reason. It gives you a story, which is why we are calling this series, This is Our Story. And story is the framework. Narrative is the way, again, that our text, our tradition, is attempting to address these challenges. So Job 1 begins. There once was a man in the land of Uds, whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So again, when you come to the text, because many of us are still influenced by a very literalistic, mechanical reading of the text, let me just encourage you. The text is not trying to tell you about a real historical person as its primary objective. The story is trying to engage you with the narrative and for you to find yourself in that story. And then we can argue about the historicity, but the first and foremost idea, there once was a man. That is story language that it is attempting. This phrase also, blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil, is going to show up three times, possibly four times in this text. If there was any question at the beginning of this story, do you suffer because you were bad or because you were evil or because you sinned, it is answered in verse 1 at the outset. At the very beginning of this story, the author is attempting to communicate loud and clear over and over and over again. Job, his suffering that is coming, has nothing to do with his sin, has nothing to do with his character, has nothing to do with whether or not he was good or righteous or not. This was just the fact he is blameless, he's upright, he feared God, uh, one who feared God, and he turned away from evil. And that, uh, just that phrase right there ought to stop us, pause us for a moment to say, how many of you in your time of suffering had a very well-intentioned religious person come to you and say, do you know why you're suffering? Let me tell you, there must be some sort of reason why this is happening. Or they made some sort of judgment upon you. Well, maybe there was something that you did. Or how many of you, and we've heard this from some of you, this, you know, this bad thing that is happening in, a life, in my life right now must be because I did X in my past. And that reason and the ra that rationale immediately heaps blame and shame upon you. The reason why you're suffering right now is because you are clearly suffering the consequences of your actions and your behaviors. And Job, Job is going to come into that argument and demolish it. Verse 1 
This has nothing to do with you being sinful, your character flaw. Later on, as the story goes, one day the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord. And here's the phrase, the Satan. Everybody say, ha-satan. Ha-satan is the Hebrew phrase for the accuser there. Now, in some of your Bibles, it's going to actually be translated Satan, but the reality is it's ha-satan, the Satan. That's really important because you don't call people with, a, with that direct, the direct article. Thank you, English teachers. The direct article. So that it's called the Satan is telling us that it's not the Satan devil-horned... This is something different that's going on here. Because the Satan is actually translated in the original Hebrew as the adversary, the accuser, or the one in opposition. If you were using court language, we could possibly say, ha-satan, the Satan is actually the prosecution. I am bringing a case before the court. And by the way, again, this is a, there's so much here. By the way, who's on the trial stand? Who is being accused? Who is the prosecution going for? A lot of people usually say Job. Like, is Job going to stand up to this righteousness? Is he going to stand up and be right even though all these... Job's on trial. No, it's not Job. It's God on trial. God, you're the one who, who is supposed to be good and supposed to be just. Are you really? Are you really good and just? And the Satan, Hasatan, the adversary, the prosecution, the one who is in opposition to God, comes and begins to accuse. The Lord said to the Satan, where have you come from? Which is an indication that God, Yahweh, the Lord, didn't really know where the accuser was. And the accuser says, so Satan was going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down on it. An indication that God's good world, the world that we all inhabit, also includes the roaming around of this accuser. In other words, all around us, going to and fro, is this accuser, the one who is in opposition. It is also present here in this world. The Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Which sounds like a little bit of a bet. There is no one like him on earth. And here's that phraseology again, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And God sounds like he's very proud of this. Look at, look, my creation, the person who's created in my image and in my likeness. Look at how wonderful he is. And here comes the accuser. And here's the key. Oh, this is such an amazing turn here. Then the Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. What the Satan is suggesting is what all of us suggest. We worship God, we honor God, we follow God because we have all of these things. That's the general idea. And some of us in this room operate and think in those terms. We worship God and we thank God. We bless God for all of these things that we have. Now, here's a key element in this story. This phraseology from the Satan is a not-so-subtle indictment on the kind of faith that exists merely, and here's the key phrase, for faith's benefits. In other words, what this story is attempting to take to task is faith as a commodity. We give God worship, 
we honor Him, we are good, we are right, but only because we actually have good things. Life is good, the bank account is good, the children are good, the family is good, all of my wealth is good. Oh, God, you are so good. And every single one of us have a tendency to make those connections. God is good because of all these things that we have. Sky Jatani in his book, The Divine Commodity, writes extensively about this idea. Commodification has led most people to view God as a device to be used rather than an all-powerful creator to be revered. And many of us go into religion and into faith for that exact reason, to get something out of it. In a more simplified manner, perhaps we could say, why won't God just give me what I want? The story continues. The Lord said to the Satan, well, very well, all that he has is in your power. Only do not stretch your hand out against him. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and began to wreak havoc on Job. First, the Sabaeans attack. Kill all the animals, kill all the servants. Next verse, the fire of God has fallen from the heavens, burned up all the sheep and all the goats. Next verse, the Chaldeans have come, raided the camels, and slaughtered all of the servants. And in three really quick, four or five quick verses, Job loses everything. Everything. Imagine for yourself, and the, the story, the author is attempting to ask you the question, what would it be like if right now, this moment, you went home and there was no more home? You got word that your car was stolen, your house burned down, all of your children got taken away. You had nothing left. What would be your response? How would would you respond to that? Especially given that you worship God because God has given you all of these things. And I love this. Job arose. He tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Even in this, Job did not sin. Even in this, Job was upright in saying, I will still honor and worship God. I will still be an upright and righteous man. But the Satan wasn't satisfied with taking everything away. He decides to say, but wait a second, he still has his health. And for all of us who are getting older, I never understood why old people said, I have my health. I'm very happy with that. I never understood that. As I'm getting older, oh man, does that make a lot of sense. Have my health. Yeah, everything else is so good. But he has his health. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome loathsome sores on Job from one side, from the sole of his foot, the crown of his head, Job took a potsherd with which to scrape himself, and he sat among the ashes. Job loses everything and does not curse God. Then his health, his body, the very essence of his soul is attacked. And then on top of that, his wife comes to him and says, do you still persist? What are you crazy to still have integrity? Curse God and die. This is not helpful. Job's response. Even in this. Yes, the brick testament is awesome. Job's response. Even in this. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? How many of us have ever gotten to the point 
where we recognize that God is God. And we receive the good. Baruch Hashem, bless God. And we receive the bad. Bless God. You know, we just sang that. That's why I chose this song this morning. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's nice to sing. But if you ever stop to think about it, bless God for the good and bless God for the bad. Shall we not receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad as well? There is a push to completely undermine anything within us that says God is a commodity. It is pushing us, pushing us. So this is the setup. We're only two chapters in, and there's the setup. The next segment comes three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And these friends usually get a bad rap as giving bad advice to Job. I don't think that's what's going on. Because in verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they did what? They raised their voices, wept aloud, tore their robes, threw dust upon their heads. And then they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. I have heard very, very few, if any, sermons or teachings or commentaries that have pointed that verse out. These friends are suffering with Job. They're in the pit with him. They cry out. They scream. They tear their clothes. They're like, what is going on? And they sit silently, which is always, by the way, really good advice when your friend is suffering. Don't come with reasons and rationales and purposes and whys. Just sit silently. In the Jewish tradition, it's called sitting shiva. The word shiva comes from the word seven from this passage. Just sit and suffer alongside. And then in chapter 3, it turns. And here's my gut feeling about this book. Job is doing everything he can to hang on to his integrity. His wife has already failed him in one respect. And his friends are also trying to hang on. They're hanging on by a thread. But the suffering is so great, he's pushed to his limit. And something's got to give. At some particular point, these friends realize We believe in a good and just God. We believe that God must be good. We believe that God, the creator of all this, has to be just. Do you believe that God is just? Isn't this a fundamental theology? Isn't this a fundamental principle for all of us who are pursuing God? That God is just. And that good things should happen to those who love God. And bad things should happen to those who curse God. God. And justice should be the way in which this world should work, shouldn't it? Yes, it should be. In other words, God must be just. And we believe that God is just, that evil is punished, good is rewarded. But here's the problem that Job is pointing out. If God is just in this particular way, and Job is suffering Therefore, something must have caused the suffering. I think that this turn, it's, it's, it's just wrenching my soul. I don't want to have to blame the person who's suffering. There's no way I want to do that. But if I believe in a just God, if I believe that God is just, that he is right in all ways, then there's no way that suffering could be for no reason. For the absence of a reason. So here we go. 
Eliphaz says, dude, okay, maybe you sinned somewhere, Job. And my tone is a little bit more softer than I've seen some of. Maybe, have you thought about it? Think, 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 think. Uh, do you know anybody? Do you know anybody who was innocent that ever perished? Which is actually a really horrible argument, isn't it? Like, I know a lot of innocent people who have died. Or where the upright cut off, have, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So, so clearly, this thing must have happened because you did something. So, so why don't we just identify? Can mortals be righteous before God? Can human beings be pure before their maker? I, I mean, come on, Job. I mean, I, I know you're, you're all nice and upright, but clearly there's something that must have gone on. Bill, Dad, well, you should clearly repent. If you will seek God and make supplication to the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore you to your rightful place. Job, come on, repent, just repent. You must have done something. God is just. We are predicating all of our arguments on the idea that God is just. Therefore, you must repent. There's something going on in your life. Zophar, listen, repent. I'm trying, I'm sorry to be redundant, repent. By the way, it's very redundant all throughout, but it's very poetic language. Like I said, go home and read it. If you direct your heart rightly, you will stretch out your hand toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Don't let wickedness reside in your tents. Come on, if God is just, Job, just turn, just repent, please. And all throughout these next couple dozen chapters, we see a man, Job, who is going back and forth, being barraged by his friends, being barraged by his own innocent, being barraged by his own theology, that he, he knows that God is good and that he wants to be an upright man. He's just being pulled and he's in anguish. Like, why must I have to wrestle with these big questions of life? So much so, why did I not just die at birth? come forth from the womb and expire. It would be better for me if I were dead right now than have to wrestle with this, than have to struggle, than have to suffer. And by the way, he's not saying dead so that I don't have to suffer. He's saying it'd be better if I were dead so I don't have to suffer and wrestle with this dilemma. And then we also see a man that is in contempt. I am innocent. Okay, God, after all this, 31 chapters in, Here's my signature. Answer me, please. Have you ever had conversations like that? How many of you had conversations? You, how many of you feel like Job? Like, this doesn't make sense. I, I believe that you are good and just, but this doesn't, none of this makes sense. And the reason is because Job, once again, is taking to task this idea. God must be just equals guilty people or some sort of divine purpose that is happening. And this is what many of us struggle and wrestle with when people come to us and say, you know that your suffering is for a purpose. You know that you're in the hospital because God is going to redeem, you know, all those pithy little sayings that people say. Um, or sometimes it's guilt and shame. Um, well, I hope that you've repented from some of your sin that you've done so that you will be able to come out of your suffering and out of your pain. These are horrible uh, you just want to punch somebody who says that to you, right? When you're in that space. And Job is that punch. This doesn't make any sense. I can't put it all together. Chapter 28 takes a turn. And after all of that setup of suggesting that if God is just, therefore you must be guilty or there must be some sort of divine purpose, there's a completely different shift. 
And it's fairly lengthy, but I want to read this, almost this whole chapter for you because it's the central passage in the book of Job that is shifting your eyes and attention away from justice and logic and reason, rationale and why and purpose to something completely different. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold to be refined. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Miners put an end to darkness and search out to the farthest bound the ore in gloom and deep darkness. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Mortals do not know the way to it, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. Wisdom, it cannot be gotten for gold, and silver cannot be weighed out as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels or fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The chrysolite of Ethiopia cannot compare with it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon, which is a word that means grave, and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned out the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the thunderbolt, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out, and he said to the humankind, to the humans, Truly the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Now, I know that was a lot. Did anything in that chapter suggest why Job was suffering? And the answer is no. There is no reason at all given to why Job is suffering. The turn in chapter 8 moves us away from trying to find out why. Justice, guilt, shame, purpose. It moves us away from why into a category of wisdom. And that is a very different category from the philosophy and ra- of rationale. In literary terms, we've been building and building and building. Job, you must be suffering because of this. You must be suffering because of this. You must repent. Clearly, there must be a reason. God is just. We know this to be true. Therefore, you must be guilty or there must be some sort of purpose. And it rises up to the climax of the literature and says, no, you don't get it. That's not it. The whole point and purpose of Job is not to find out why. The whole point and purpose is to figure out what is the wisdom that we can all find in our suffering. What is the wisdom? Where is our understanding? What insight do we gain for how we shall now live in the midst of suffering? Because as soon as we shift into this category of trying to figure out why, the game that we're playing is blame and shame and clearly some sort of a calculation as to whether it's God or whether it's me and we can fix it or we have control, we have power. It has to fall into those categories. Job says it doesn't fall into any of those categories. There is wisdom to be gained even in the midst of your suffering. And to just put a punch on it, God asks just like a machine gun to Job, shoots a bunch of questions. Hey, uh, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Uh, Who are you? 
Are you ask, why are you asking me a bunch of questions? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare it to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Uh, Kwame, where were you when God laid the foundation of the earth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Um, Ezekiel, is the, did the morning happen because of you? Do you see the rhetorical nature of these questions? Um, have you entered into the spring of the sea? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you been there? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, the constellations? Can you, can you go up there and, and capture that? Can you do that? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Do you give the horse its might? Do you do any of this? I, oh, man. This is brilliant, powerful, painful literature. Where were you? You think you can understand? You think you can make a reasonable rationale for all of the things that you see? You think you can understand this? Where were you? Were you there? Were you there at the beginning? Sun, moon, stars, constellations, horses. I mean, this literature just goes on and on and on. Where were you at the beginning of the universe? And of course, the power of that rhetoric and the brilliance of this literature is, oh yeah, I, uh, is it by your wisdom that the hawk soars? Job's response is exactly correct. Then Job answered the Lord, uh, see, I am of small account. Uh, what shall I answer? I just, mm-hmm. I will lay my hand upon my mouth. This is exactly correct. I have spoken once. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I... Yeah, I, go ahead. You, you take the floor. The mic is yours, God. Do you see what's happening? Any attempt that we give to reason and rationale puts us in control. Puts us in that space. Where were you? The book ends with a description of the behemoth and the leviathan. And Christian apologists for many, many years, or at least as I've grown up, have said, see, evidence of dinosaurs or evidence of ancient creatures. Um, most commentators uh, that study ancient Near Eastern literature are going to suggest to you that behemoth and leviathan are actually ancient chaos creatures of ancient Mesopotamian religions. In other words, they're symbols of all the chaos and all the suffering and all the pain and all the dysfunction that we see around us. Whenever you go to work and there's a fight in the C-suite of your job, that's the Leviathan. Whenever you're out in traffic and people are honking to no- and so impatient and can't get home because all that construction that's happening out there on Willow, not that I would make an example of that, but anyway, that's the behemoth. When you're at home and something within you just rises up and you are arguing and you are fighting and there's, that's that creature. And when floods and fires and natural disasters and disease fall upon us, that's these creatures. That's what we have to live with. And the story ends with that. Look at the behemoth, which I made just as I made you. What? You're telling me that all of this is also part of God's creation? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish? Can you take out all of that? Can you do that? No. In other words, <laughs> you're going to have to live with it. Welcome 
to the world. Pain and suffering and good things coexist. And the goal is not to figure out why. The goal is to try to figure out how to be wise within it. So what is the story here in sum? If I can just put some bullet points on it. This story is not about Job's character. Next time you are suffering or a friend of yours is suffering pain that is beyond their control, it's not because of them, according to Job. And it's not about God's justice. Because if they were suffering, then somehow it should be about them. This is not an explanation for suffering. In fact, and here's the great, if there was a philosophy, here's the great philosophical point. It is the absence of explanation that makes it suffering. It is the fact that there is no reason that there is evil. Uh, I'm going to pick on Ezekiel. You work out, yeah? I, yeah. Do you work out? Is it painful? Do you hurt? Is it evil? Why? You choose it, and it's for a It is the absence of a reason that makes it suffering and evil. So Job's not going to try to give one. As soon as you give a reason for your pain and your suffering, it's not evil anymore. It's not suffering. It's purposeful. Do you see that twist? So Job is staying far, far away. And this is not a story for how to stop suffering. Friends, we're going to have to live with the Leviathan. We're going to have to live with the behemoth. I wish, oh dear Lord, I wish I could tell you that if you follow God, there will be no more trouble in your life. Oh, how I wish, painfully wish, I could protect my little one and all of your little ones from all the pain and the suffering and the rejection and the natural disasters and the diseases that I know are coming their way. Oh, dear Lord, I wish I could protect them. I can't. You know you can't either. So this is not a story for how to stop suffering. This is a story about acknowledging and honoring the suffering that you're in, just like Job's friends who sat with him to carry that load together. This is why we as a community hopefully do that with one another when we hear of somebody who's suffering. This is about gaining wisdom and insight. And one of the first pieces of wisdom and insight is you weren't there at the beginning, is to recognize our place in this world. And ultimately, this is a book about trusting God's wisdom in the midst of suffering and refusing to commodify this God, to turn God into a vending machine that gives you what you need and what you want and then return you give God what he wants. That kind of exchange is found nowhere in Job and actually fights against it. So my friends, I hope none of that was helpful. Because it doesn't give you an answer. But what it does do, what this book, what this story does, is it acknowledges and honors that every single one of us live in this world with pain and suffering, with the Leviathan, with the behemoth. And by the way, the next time you have somebody in your life who's acting all chaotic and dysfunction, just call them the Leviathan and that'll make you feel better. You're going to have to live with that. And you're going to have to learn how to be wise in relationship to even them. That's what this story is attempting to do. And I would encourage you to read deeply into the poetry because it is really brilliant literature. And the reason why this is in our text um, in the form of a story 
is because the most ancient book in our Bible is not attempting to give you all the right answers. It's attempting to draw you into the narrative, draw you into the story so that all of us can live out that story together. And when you walk out these doors and the next moment where you face pain and suffering and evil and trial, you won't try to explain it, but you will try to find wisdom in it. And you will desperately trust God in and through it. And if your friend is suffering, just like Job's friends, you will sit with them in it. And that is our story.